when I think about do I want to continue raising awareness to mental health or um, what makes me continue doing it, I think of mum and I think, you know, no mum should ever lose a child to suicide and if I can help others open up their eyes to have conversations and, and not go through that, then I've, I've done my job. So for me, whilst it is sad to, to think about mum and the, and the life she leads now and being broken and, um, I, yeah, her pain certainly resonates with me every day to keep doing what I do, that's for sure. gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Mitch McPherson's entire world was upended when, at the beginning of 2013, his 18-year-old brother, Ty, took his own life. Immersed in grief, he decided the least he could do was try and keep Ty's name alive. So he traced a simple drawing of a pair of shorts, as his little brother was always dressed in footy shorts, along with the words, speak up, stay chatty, with the T-Y at the end of chatty capitalised. Mitch had no idea this simple sketch would be the catalyst for the creation of one of the most acclaimed suicide prevention and mental health promotion programs in the country. This is an incredible story of vulnerability, strength and the undying love of one man for his little brother. A young life gone far too soon, just like the more than 3,000 Australians who take their life every year. 75% of those male. Heartbreakingly, suicide is the leading cause of death for people aged between 15 and 44. That's why movements like Stay Chatty are so vitally important. Mitch's work has saved lives. In this chat, Mitch and I discuss his new role as a father to his beautiful little daughter, the impact losing his brother has had on how he'll raise her, how we should be raising young men in today's world by teaching them to be vulnerable, to speak up when they feel down and to be in touch with their feelings. Speak up, stay chatty's humble beginnings and how it's grown to what it is today. A trigger warning, this conversation addresses suicide. If you or anyone you know needs help, 24-hour crisis support is available through Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here's Mitch. Mitch, thank you so much for joining me on the Lemonade podcast. I'm so thrilled we've finally made it happen. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, a couple of, as you said earlier, a couple of full starts with uh, life getting in the way for both of us in the past. But yeah, I'm thrilled to, to be here. So thank you. With all my guests, I always love to ask them how isolation is treating them. Well, you know, all my guests lately, because that seems to be all anyone can speak about right now. But yours has been particularly special because you became a father. That's way more interesting than baking banana bread. Yes, how is yes. your gorgeous little girl, Maya? Yeah, uh, wonderful. Um, we've had, it's been really odd, like it's just so strange. Like uh, in the last week or two, we've kind of relaxed it a little bit in terms of uh, people coming around and, and meeting her, not necessarily holding her and having cuddles, etc. But it's been very strange like that. Um, you know, we've never had a child before, but just to live that life of the excitement but not being able to really share that with anyone. But, um, yeah, on a whole, she's amazing. Um, I'm a smitten dad. Everyone said, oh, you know, when I said I was having a daughter, they're like, oh, sons are awesome. But 
you know, having a daughter, you she'll be a daddy's girl and it'll be the best thing ever. And it totally is like I just want to wake her up and cuddle her all the time. And um, <laughs> and your wife's know, like, no, don't wake her up. <laughs> um, and I think my I grow the worst beard um, on earth, but I think my little facial hair tickles her and gives her a little rash on her side of her face. But that's okay. And yeah, it's uh, it's been amazing. And um, yeah, touch wood, she's uh, healthy and fit. And uh, yeah, it's been a good time. I can only imagine how difficult it must be. It would have been, you said it, you said to me off before we started that she's eight weeks old, almost eight weeks old to not have had anyone coming over. And, and that's the, that's the best time is when you've got that new baby. You just want to show them off to the entire world because you're so proud, but you didn't really get to do that. No, no. And I mean, immediate family have come from the moment we got home. I think the hardest bit was probably the hospital. We had five nights in at the hospital and, you know, for even when I left to go get my coffee or food, you know, no one could sort of tap in and come in as well. And um, my wife comes from a, a really big family and they're very, very family orientated and extremely close with her mum and like a lot of people are. But, yeah, that initial five days in hospital was like, yeah, cabin fever times 100, just wanted to get out of there and, and show her off. So at least we're home and now people can call in and albeit look at her from a distance. We're still able to share that excitement, which, is, which has been fun. And what do you think has surprised you most about fatherhood so far? Uh, what surprised me most? Probably I'd held babies in the past and had been a total nervous wreck, like friends <laughs> and family. I've got a niece and nephew um, who are 10 and uh, ten and 9, um, but I've been surprised at how comfortable I've been to just sort of launch in and pick her up. And I think yep. people have said that as well, that when it's your own, I think more the pressure for me in the past was, holding babies and worrying what the parent was going to judge me. Oh, my God, he's not supporting the neck or whatever. But here, I'm definitely not rough, you know, but I feel so comfortable to, to launch in and pick her up at any stage. And, uh, yeah, that sort of surprised me because I thought I'd be a real nervous wrecking being really carefully picking her up. But that's been a breeze. So that's probably a really positive surprise, I think. Yeah, definitely. That makes so much sense as well. Now, you are so influential in the field of mental health, and that's obviously a huge struggle for so many people, so many of us right now with everything that's going on with the coronavirus and being isolated and people losing their jobs and and ways of life. What can we be doing to support ourselves through this time right now, in your opinion? Yeah, well, it's um, become a really common word, connection, over the last while. Like when this first happened, um, I was sort of, for me, it was a weird transition because I, I hurt my knee, which we'll probably talk about later. We had a baby and then at work, coronavirus kicked in and everyone was starting to work from home. And so I've still been involved as much as I can. It's been strange not working through this. All the guys are working from home. Um, and connection has been a word, a buzzword, if you like, that you sort of turn on the news or you listen to podcasts and here we are talking about the word connection. Um, but the reality is this is so true that, you know, and it sounds a bit cliche to pick up the phone when you're feeling flat and make sure you have those conversations, but you, you just have to do it. And I'm you know, sure we'll talk about my journey and what I've been through in the last eight weeks. You've had those moments, but you, it's just all about fighting through and knowing that that's the right thing to do. Um, we all wake up and have, you know, you have shitty days, you have shitty nights and you wake up and you just don't feel like you've got the energy to pick up the phone or, or get on, you know, FaceTime with someone. But what I've done and I've practised what I preach is just do it even though I don't feel like it because when I hang up, I feel better. And I think there's, I don't know the science around it, but I guarantee that you nine out of ten people will feel better after making that connection. So just so important because the novelty wears off. You know, everyone's working from home or, you know, people are schooling from home and all the parents and 
people I know that are working from home and doing that, by now the novelty's worn off and we're all like, let's get back to normality. And Absolutely. so that's why having your, your, your FaceTimes and your, your chats and your connection with your mates is so important. So it is a buzzword that we all go on about and we're hearing a lot about, but think about it and find ways in which you can do it because it, it absolutely will help you. Absolutely. Now, I this is how I usually start my podcast pre-corona, but I always uh, start by asking the guests what their childhood was like and getting an idea of what, what kinds of things they were interested in, what their fi- family dynamic was like. So, Mitch, what was it like for you? What was growing up like for you? Uh, yeah, growing up was fun. I'm uh, the eldest of three. Um, and I mean, we grew up, I think in my book I wrote, um, we didn't have a whole heap of money. Dad was a butcher. He ended up getting a job at the at the prison, was working as a custodial officer. Um, mum didn't work. She did a bit of cleaning. And But I remember mum and dad being quite social, which was good. You know, they had a lot of friends. And so I have fond memories of, you know, barbecues and visiting people's houses and you know, those nights where you're a young kid falling asleep on the couch and mum or dad are picking you up at 2, 3 a.m. to load you in the car when you're half asleep and it's yeah. the worst thing in the world. Falling uh-huh. into bed is the best thing after that. Yeah. Um, so I remember a lot of that. Um, when people have asked me, you know, was I close with my family growing up? I was. I strange in my whole journey, which we'll, we'll talk about, I, I kind of find that I focus on friends a lot really early and I think that I put friends as... Um, and making friends and keeping friends happy more of a priority throughout my probably, you know, late primary school into high school years. And it's something I sort of regret a little bit. Like, you know, don't get me wrong, I was extremely close with my family. But, you know, if I woke up of a morning, I would probably automatically think, what are my friends doing today rather than let's go and spend some time with mum, dad or my brother or my sister. Yeah. And, um, yeah, if I probably had my time again, I, I wish I'd been taught or I'd I just wish I was the type of person that put family first more and um, I think that's probably why these days I, you know, I turn to my wife first to see what we're going to do during the day before I will hang out with a mate. Um, I just think it's really important and especially now we've got a child. I think um, I want her to grow up and really prioritise us as she gets older and want her to spend as much time with us as possible. Um, but, yeah, I had a fun time. I, I played every possible sport under the sun, you know, footy, cricket, softball, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to have friends. I wouldn't say I was the coolest guy. I think I probably spent a bit of my high school years, I went to an all-boys school called St Virgil's down here in Hobart, and I wouldn't. I sort of was in the middle. I was kind of like trying to hang out with the cool guys, um, but I wasn't cool enough to, like, you know, they'd sort of hang out with me some days and then some days they wouldn't. Um, <laughs> high school's I, I, so brutal. <laughs> yeah, it is brutal. And again, I think back now, you know, that's why when I, I work in schools now and obviously talk about mental health and talk about, I just wish I was myself, you know. I'm, one thing I preach now is where every single person in this world is doing life the best they can so that they put their head on the pillow at night to get a good night's sleep. And I kind of wish I thought knew that back then, you know. That's why I teach, I try and educate kids that now, you know, because it just doesn't matter. Um, you know, you just got to be yourself and, and be true to that and the people that want to be around you will and the people that won't won't and that's fine. You know, there's millions and millions and billions of people on this earth. So, yeah, I spent a bit of time chasing, trying to find out who I was and the reality is I don't really think I worked out who I was until after college when I had a job and was working and, you know, started to put back into family and, um, you know, still really big on my friends and I still am today. But, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it's interesting. I sometimes sit and reminisce about my life, what it was like when I was when I was young. And there's certainly, like a lot of us, a lot of things I do differently, but it's certainly a lot of things that I learned as well, which I think now I think about that more because of Maya now. You know, mm. I'm 
you've got to start thinking what type of person do you want her to be or what kind of person do you want her to perceive you to be? And, um, and so I certainly think about that now and hope to pass on as many life lessons as I possibly can. You were saying, you know, you'd left school and everything was kind of carrying on as normal as, as we assume that our life is going to carry on. And it was 2013 when everything in your life and in your family's life completely upended. And I'm sure it almost started just as a normal year when 2013 began as well. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Um, so when I left school in 05, a bit about that journey from 05 to 2013, I, I kind of left um, high school feeling pretty lost. I remember having a chat with mum one day and she said, you know, I read your report and it wasn't amazing. We spent a bit of money for you to go to this school. Uh, you know, what's your life look like now? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure because I focused on sport. I was always the first down on the oval at high school to kick a footy around or play cricket. And I didn't really it wasn't drilled into me. I don't know whether it was my parents or my, t- my teachers were drilling it into me, but I just didn't let it soak in that it was important to think about life after school. So then I went on to college in 2004 um, and 05, um, and still didn't do it, you know. I got caught up with my mates who played the footy club I played with for a long time. We started, we turned 18, so we, the party scene kicked in. And um, again, I just sort of was a bit lost thinking, what is it that I'm going to do with my life? Um, I did a couple of jobs, worked in a sports shop, did a traineeship in sign writing, and then I landed an apprenticeship uh, in glazing. And uh, I did that for about seven years. Uh, did I like glazing? Not really. I think um, I look back now, I, you know, I sort of hope that I don't ever have to do it again. I've got my trade in it and there were things that I learned and the people I did it with I loved uh, and liked, but I certainly hope I don't have to get back into the trade again. But that was my life, was, you know, putting windows in, playing sport um, and just that Cruising was along. Living for the weekend. Um, so 2012 Christmas, um, had a fun old time with family and friends, um, a lot of beers, um, time in the sun as you do, um, entered 2013 and then uh, I remember the countdown was on to the date of having to go back to work, which was the 14th of Jan. And, um, you know, I'd always dread it after holidays. We know what it's like when we work mm-hmm. and we have time off. It's a pretty ordinary feeling having to go back to work. But... For me, I'd isolate myself in my room. You know, I'd do all the things that I, I treat people these days to not do when you're feeling flat. You know, I hid away in my bedroom. I didn't have conversations with family and friends in that last week, just thinking, you know, holy shit, I can't believe I have to go back to work next week. Um, but, yeah, then on the, thir- uh, the 13th of 14th of Jan came around and uh, I went to work that day, had a normal day, uh, got home. Uh, I was actually arguing with my girlfriend. She's now my, my wife now, Sahar. She was... She'd come down to Dad's for the night um, to have some dinner with me. And I never forget, you know, I promised her the night before that if she came down, I'd cook her some veggies for dinner. But classic Mitch McPherson back then, she'd, she'd come down and uh, I was telling her I'd had a massive day at work and I was encouraging her to drive me to get McDonald's. So she started giving me a bit of a spray in the bedroom, calling me a, a liar for, for promising her veggies and not doing it. Um, but then out of the blue, we got a, um, a scream upstairs from my dad and my stepmom. Um, pandemonium kicked in, ran upstairs, saw my dad um, and he was telling us that mum had called him to let us know that my little brother Ty, who'd just turned 18, had suicided and uh, and had taken his own life. Um, and, you know, you talk about things you learn and um, life and, and everything just sort of flashes before you, you know, and suicide, there'll be a lot of people that listen that have been through it and for me straight away was just that that guilt. I know that I've learned now that it's not my fault that, that Ty took his life, but 
um, the first emotion I felt was guilt. You know, he was my, my best friend. My, you know, I was 25, he was 18. We, you know, wrestled backyard cricket, footy, pick him up, drop him off, transferring money, all those things that you get to do when you um, have a sibling around your same age. So I just felt that guilt straight away. And I still feel it, you know, these days sometimes. You, you sort of learn to live with it. Um, but, yeah, in those initial stages, um, I would have given anything to just go back in time and, you know, find out why he was feeling that way or, or wish that I could have done something different. So, yeah, ultimately losing him entered us into a, a roller coaster of misery and hell for a, a very, very long time, that's for sure. When you look back at that time, were there any changes in his behaviour before that day that you noticed or didn't notice and you might have missed? Yeah, for sure. So a big part of my story, and now, as you say, we'll, we'll get into it about me being a mental health advocate and speaker. I, um, it took us a while, you know, that grief, that sadness, that guilt, you know, burying him, moving forward without him, trying to work out, you know, what went right. I remember having lots of conversations with people, and in particular one, the funeral director who was actually a, a family friend um, four day, three days after we lost Ty. Um, he said, did you see signs in Ty that he was struggling? And um, automatically we'd all say no. You know, we, mm. he was fun, he was 18, he was popular, he was a happy-go-lucky guy. Um, that day when the funeral director asked me, I nearly threw a vase of flowers at him because I thought, you know, how dare you assume that he was struggling or, or going through a dark time. I'm not a violent person, but it just sort of came over me thinking a frustration, how dare you assume that. Um, but as the weeks and months passed, I, I remember one night sitting um, at home and just thinking about those moments in the past, thinking about, you know, when I saw Ty, moments I spent with him, times I saw him. And it, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, it really did start to, to click and, and register with me that, hey, it was only a couple of weeks, but there were moments where he wasn't okay and, and Ty was not himself. And I remember sharing those with my dad and my mum and my stepmum and my sister and when I started to share them, I remember it was like a, a beam went off in their eyes where they also were starting to reflect back on moments and we realised we were wrong in saying that he was okay because the truth was that he was actually struggling and going through a bit of a dark period. Um, you know, he stopped eating dinner. Like I joke about he was like Usain Bolt at dinner time when someone would shout out dinner's ready, he'd fly out to the kitchen and knock over humans and furniture just to get his ass to the kitchen table. He'd love eating dinner with us. But in the last two weeks, there were probably four or five nights where he didn't come out of his bedroom and join us. And, you know, we all spoke about it. You know, where's Tig? Uh, Tig's his nickname. Um, oh, you know, he's 18. He probably ate earlier. He's fine. Let's leave him alone. You know, upon reflection, they're the moments now that I, I preach to people, you know, that change, that 1%. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone's off their game, it's so important to go and check in and ask what's going on and, and poke and prod them a little bit to find out. Um, oh, four days before he took his life, I, I caught him walking home. He was probably about a half an hour walk from home. I offered him a lift. He said no. Um, you know, he'd usually jump on the, the bonnet of the car to get a lift home with me and play some cricket. And, you know, I remember driving off that day, looking at him in the rear view. His head had dropped. He was dawdling along the road. And, um, uh, yeah, even the night before he passed away, saying goodnight to him. Um, that's how I finished my presentation, talk about wanting to go back in time. I never forget looking at him, um, mumbling the word night to me and, um, I often say, you know, he had tears in his eyes, he had pale face and he was a young guy laying there praying that someone would ask, are you okay? Or praying, he had the courage to, to call me in and say, no, I'm not, you know, I need to have a conversation. And, um, you know, so those moments for me, whilst they hurt and whilst they, you know, are difficult to, to think about, I think um, I hope that they're a learning curve for others, you know. And I, I said a moment ago, one percenters, um, 
you've got to check in. You know, if someone's one percent off, it's so important to just look at them and and sit them down and say, mate, one in five go through this. Um, you're not alone. You're you're not strange. You're not weird. You know, make sure you talk to me. Have that conversation about what it is that's getting you down. Because I, yeah, you know, I, I live every day living and breathing this, and 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 hoping others don't go through what I did. But whilst I do that, there's a huge part of me wishing um, I could go back in time and knew what I know now. That's for sure. Yeah, it gives brings me to tears hearing you say that story. Um, how did your parents handle this time? Can I, as you're and you're a parent now, and I'm a parent. I can yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah, um, there are. Um, you say you're um, going to tear up. I haven't spoken about this for a few weeks, having some weeks off, so battled through it myself. Um, yeah, mum and dad are a big driving force for me. Again, I always refer back to my how I structured out my my presentation and and how I want it to be impactful and what I can do to, to make people open up their eyes to see how real suicide is. I often focus on mum and dad a lot and, you know, I often say a parent um, should never lose a child, but I, I can't help after living through it think that suicide, it goes to another, you know, another hundred levels of pain and, mm. and sadness. And, you know, I talk about that, that guilt that I felt and feel as a, as a brother um, for mum and dad. It was, yeah, it was awful. And they've certainly changed their life now. Um, uh, mum, she split with her husband. Fortunately, over the last year or two, they've got back together, which is great. They've found their way back together. Um, but mum lost her job. She um, had breakdowns a lot. Um, you know, myself, um, I lived with my um, dad and my stepmum and Ty lived with mum probably 60 70% of the time, and he was the only one there, whereas my dad and my stepmum had me and my stepbrothers and sisters. Uh, so for mum, you know, he was a little baby. and. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's been incredibly hard on Mum. I I never forget the in the weeks after etc. Um, getting around Mum as much as I possibly could, but you know, and seeing the pain in her voice and and the, the breakdowns she used to have, and I, I still often think about them. And as hard as they are to think about, they for me are a really big driver in what I do. I I often I get upset thinking about it, and even when I'm telling people about it, I, I lose my way a little bit, but. When I think about do I want to continue raising awareness to mental health or um, what makes me continue doing it, I think of mum and I think, you know, no mum should ever lose a child to suicide and if I can help others open up their eyes to have conversations and, and not go through that, then I've, I've done my job. So for me, whilst it is sad to, to think about mum and the, and the life she leads now in being broken and losing relationships and, and family members, etc. Um, I, yeah, her pain certainly resonates with me every day to keep doing what I do, that's for sure. And, and Dad as well. You know, Dad's Dad's found different ways. They're both they're separated, obviously, and they've both found different ways to deal with it. Um, but it's fair to say that, you know, isolation for them went up a lot. Um, communication with friends and that connection that we spoke about earlier is certainly a lot harder to do when you have that huge hole in your heart and mm. in losing your little boy. So, yeah, definitely it's been a, a long road for them. And... What kind of a person was Ty? How do you remember him? Um, fun, happy, um, uh, a guy, lucky guy. He um, was very popular. Um, he was learning to drive. Uh, and the sad, one of the sad things for me, a really sad moment for Dad as well, we just spoke about, the, so the, um, on the Monday, the day, the day Ty took his life, um, he and Dad set off that Monday and they went and had a breakfast at a cafe together. Um, they went to K&D and bought him some new tradie gear and some boots and then they went and met his new boss and workmates and played some eight ball and had a laugh and a morning tea because the next day Ty was meant to start day one of a, a building apprenticeship with a local business in Hobart. Um, Dad dropped him off at Mum's that afternoon. He said, I'm going to pack a bag, come down and spend the night. 
you know, it was four hours later that mum rang and said that he, um, you know, she'd found him and he'd suicided. He, he was happy. He appeared to be happy. You know, I spoke about those moments earlier that just in that last two weeks, um, we never really worked it out what it was with Ty. I, I think, um, you know, I think the fun, happy-go-lucky guy was something that we certainly got a little bit complacent with and I'm sure there were a lot of nights in his life where, like that Sunday night before he died, that he probably shut his door and broke down and I reckon that stigma was a, a big player for him, that he was, like a lot of people, you know, wanted to put on that persona that everything's great and dandy and I'm good and, and wanted to be perceived as that guy that could just give everyone a lift but I'm sure behind closed doors he was um, just in that last couple of weeks, you know, struggling and, and really didn't know how to deal with it. I think you know, starting a new job, thinking that I'm not quite mentally 100%, how the hell am I going to, you know, learn to build and, and get on with my colleagues and be a good employee. So I think that probably um, put a lot of pressure on him. Um, if only he'd just come out of his room and told us what was happening, I'm sure we would have helped him through it. But, yeah, he, um, the youngest, he was 18. I, you know, 10, he only took his life 10 days after he passed away, and I'll never forget his 18th. We all went out and... Um, it was probably about 15 of us, his friends, some of my friends. We had a big night out. We were all a bit hungover the next day. I remember texting him and, you know, he said he was hungover. And I remember putting my head back on my bed that morning thinking, I can't believe my little brother's 18 and he's hungover, you know, like he was a baby not long ago. Um, so it was, I, I often get sad that I didn't get to share more of those um, moments, you know, going on trips and going bonding. to the, yeah. yeah, bonding and having beers and stuff. But I'm also glad that I got one. You know, it makes me, yeah, incredibly sad about that. But I'm, I'll forever hold on to that we got that one night, you know, like that one that one um, night where we could go out and have a beer and have a laugh and carry on like dickheads and be boys. It's really special that I, I get to have that. So, yeah, he was he transitioned from a boy to a man in 10 days. And, um, yeah, it's kind of good we'll forever get to remember him as being that baby tig but also um, a young man that was about to step into the workforce for sure. Where has this idea come from that men in particular, I'm sorry for making you emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, God, it just really hits. Where has this idea, do you think, come from that men, seemingly men in particular, don't feel like they have any other option but to resort to these drastic measures to take their own lives? Why don't they feel comfortable to reach out? Yeah, I sat on um, a panel uh, some years ago, early days when I was doing this work, and it was about values and um, Australians and how we see values and what are our values. And I sat on a panel with a few people, and I remember um, someone, I cannot remember who it was, but talking about how the male has grown up and one of the values is to be strong for his family and, you know, to be the, you know, probably the breadwinner or and the one that's strong and doesn't show emotion and is there for his wife and tells people to toughen up. And I... I honestly believe that that's brought us undone over the years. You know, that's that's changing now and it's going to take a long way. You know, it's come a long way, but I, I think it's going to take a lot more to get through that. But I think that's probably where we went wrong in thinking that men have to be that type because um, we forgot all those years ago that men have emotions too and men have worries and troubles and minds. And, again, I say this with absolutely zero disrespect to, to women, but I just think that that's how we as a society raise men to to be tougher, not to show their emotions. You know, how many times did, you know, we heard that toughen up or get over it or you'll be right, you're a man, don't be a wuss, you know, don't be a little girl. Um, that's played on men, I think, over the years. So, yeah, there's, thank God that um, society and organisations are out there reminding us that um, of how prevalent it is, how prevalent suicide is for men, um, how many men struggle. 
um, and therefore reminding us that it's that men, it's okay to, to talk about your troubles and, and talk about your worries and um, you're not strange, you're not different, you're not unusual, you're not weird, um, you're human and uh, you're going to feel it. So, yeah, I believe it goes back to that. that um, mm. That's where that all, that all, that's where it all stems from. And um, so let's raise our boys these days to grow into strong men, of course, but to let them know that they can connect emotionally with themselves and, um, and reach out for support if they need it. Yeah, I'd be really curious to know about that, that what are some of the things as I'm the mother of a son and there's, there's a lot of people who listen to this that have young boys, what should we be doing to make sure our children, our sons, you know, daughters as well, of course, but our sons in particular feel like they can express themselves to feel like they're supported? Yeah, I, I think um, remind, just reminding them, as I said, getting in touch with their emotions is fine. Um and that's got to be stemmed into people as much as we possibly can and to reach out for support. I think if I, when, if I hope I have a boy one day, but I will do it the, the same with Maya to let them know that um, life is going to, you know, you might be 20, I was 25 and I feel I'd never experienced grief or hardship. You know, I was fit, I was healthy, I had money, I had a, a loving girlfriend, had mates around me and I was feeling invincible thinking that nothing would ever happen to me. And I think if we remind young kids growing up that, Life might be dandy for a lot of times, but you are going to face hardship. There is no question that in your life you will feel a, feel a pain like no other. And when you feel that, it's important that you don't deal with it on your own. Mm. Um, that you you know you tell your parents the doors always open. Your, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, you know, have connections um, as much as you possibly can. I think since um, I was a tradie, um, my best mate and I have been. Um, Fagan, who lives in, he lived in Melbourne for a long time and he lives on the Gold Coast. We ring each other every morning mm. um, and it's five to eight or eight o'clock when we're on the way to work and it's just that little check-in. And for me, um, people often ask me, you know, what are your, what helps you with your self-care? And I sometimes wake up in the morning and think, oh, I'm going to tell Benny that in the morning and that's my little, my little avenue to get something off my chest or make me feel better. And so I think that establishing things in your life and ways in which you can communicate with others and get things off your chest and talk but also listen as well listening is therapeutic and can make you feel better and feel that you've helped people i think that's so important so yeah grow young people to get in touch with their emotions find ways to stay connected find the people they trust i think trust is a big thing um and i truly believe that if we do that with young people the next generation will grow up knowing that it's okay to talk and um yeah parents like you as and me when we get older will probably rest a little bit easier knowing that um our kids are adults and they, they know that there's support out there if they need it. And modelling those emotions as well must be so important. Like, you know, I've teared up, you've teared up and we've been chatting for about 20 minutes. Like that is just a normal human reaction and I think, I'm, I'm not sure if you would agree, that would be so important to show our children that we do cry and we do yeah. feel all kinds of different things, modelling it in with, within ourselves. 100%. Uh, I, um, for, you know, my story now is it's nearly been eight years, well, seven and a half years that, the tie died and um, for a lot of my journey and setting up the organisation, I um, would quite often write, you know, um, really in-depth things and I made myself really vulnerable and, you know, I've cried when I've spoken. I think that um, for people to see me making myself vulnerable is really important and I hope that, you know, I've had tons of messages over the years and, and calls and people I've stopped that said, you know, I've, I've seen you make yourself vulnerable and that's helped me and for wow. me I think that's incredibly powerful. So, yeah, you're right, people listening to this of, you know, yeah, if you've got to let something out, let it out because there'll be someone out there somewhere that will um, will help you through it and, and, and you will benefit others by doing that for sure. It didn't take long for you to establish Speak Up, Stay Chatty 
in the aftermath. I think it took about, you set that up in 2014. What was it, why was it important for you to turn what had happened into an opportunity to help other young people who may have been struggling with mental health issues? Yeah, yeah, it was probably um, officially Stay Chatty um, was registered in early 2014. It was probably about about four months after we lost Ty. I remember I visited mum and it was a really sad trip. I just like every every trip to mum's was sad from then on. There were just, you know, tears and, and that guilt. I know we were all feeling it and we were just trying to find our way out of the hole that we'd all fallen into even months on. You know, you'd still, you know, I'd find ways to smile and I'd gone to Melbourne to see the boys and, laughed and watched the footy but in quiet time I was myself and all my family were still very much in a big black mm-hmm. hole and didn't know how to get out of it and I remember yeah driving home from mum's one day and I um after seeing her, I thought I, I, I would like to do something positive you know there's got to be a way that I can turn this positive into uh or this negative into a positive I went home I got a pad and pen and I started sketching ideas for a car sticker because I thought if I created a car sticker maybe our friends and family can put it on their car it can pay tribute to Ty and um and we can, you know, lift our spirits, but also maybe open up other people's eyes to suicide. You know, I didn't really know anyone in the past that had suicided. And if I'd heard of it, I certainly didn't take it seriously and ever think that it could it could happen to me. So, yeah, Speak Up, Stay Chatty was born. Our logo is a little pair of shorts with um, uh, Speak Up, Stay Chatty. The T-Y is capitalised, obviously, because of his name, Ty. Um, the reason behind the footy shorts, Ty loved wearing footy shorts everywhere. Um, you know, he'd go out for dinner, he'd go out for breakfast. Um, He'd always just wear footy shorts. He loved them, but he'd always wear them without any undies on. Um, very inappropriate. Um, there were moments over the years where we'd be watching TV and Ty'd have his feet up on the coffee table. Um, we'd have to tell him, Tig, come on, mate, put your feet down. You can only imagine what was exposed out of the side of his shorts. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was an idiot. He was a larrikin. Uh, I got the sticker printed a week later, ordered a 1,000. Um, I was a bit um, overzealous, I think, getting a 1,000, but they went in the first few weeks. I set up a Facebook page. Uh, I look back at, you know, Facebook now is nice. It gives you memories, what is it, mm. um, where you look back on it. And I look at the posts that I did for Stay Chatty early days and it was pretty dire. Um, it was sort of <laughs> me writing about how shit my life was, missing my little brother. You know, I'd be, I'd drive home from cricket training or footy training and, um, you know, I'd drive past the cemetery I'd drive past a young boy that looked like him and I'd write about how I'd break down. Again, making myself vulnerable in a yeah. bid to great change. But getting people to slap a sticker on, think of time in a happy place, but more importantly, cuddle your friends, cuddle your family and make yourself vulnerable and speak up. Yeah, it's, um, it kind of blew up. The Facebook page now is about 28,000 likes, but in the first few weeks, just everyone liked it. Um, you know, Tig was a popular guy. I was fortunate enough to have connections in footy clubs um, and sporting clubs across the south. Jackie Rewild, a, a close friend, um, he was on the footy show and he put the logo up and, you know, doesn't get much better than that. Wow. Um, and he told people what we were doing and mentioned how he'd come to Ty's funeral and, you know, how heartbreaking it was. And, yeah, it just sort of took off. Um, I remember I stood up in front of my footy club when they asked me about it and I told them about Stay Chatty and um, I jumped in the car after that and thought, geez, that was shit house, that bit of public speaking. But a lot of people wrote to me and said, Mitch, you know, you standing up there and talking about your pain really resonated with us and we, and we thank you for that and you know I did a bit of drama in grade 10 but I then started to put together a bit of a presentation and think you know what this is probably something I could do you know maybe I could be a bit of an advocate and start mm. sharing my story and, and telling people about it and yeah put myself out there started getting called out to workplaces in between my, my glazing work my glazing boss got sick of it in the end because I was probably having a day a week for a, a couple of months 
going out and doing this sort of work and it just sort of overcome my life. I'd, you know, sell stickers, wristbands, come up with posts, quotes. Um, we set it up as a registered charity with the help of some great friends. Um, and then, yeah, in 2014, the greatest thing ever happened, Relationships Australia, Tasmania, um, their CEO who just moved on, Matt Rao, um, I'll never forget he called and he said, Mitch, we've noticed what you're doing in the community. Um, come and have an interview. And I, I went in and sat with them and, yeah, for a couple of chats, um, they offered me employment with them and said, we love what you're doing. We would wow. love to partner with you and, and help you grow Stay Chatty. And, uh, yeah, fast forward seven years, um, Stay Chatty is a bit of a beast now here in Tasmania. We've, you know, million dollars worth of state funding, seven employees, youth reference groups, sports program. Um, yeah, it's a, a really amazing thing that we've turned it into. I never, you know, I know that I was the one that started it and I know that I was passionate about it, but, you know, so many people believed in it and so many people um, wanted to, you know, so many people had been touched by suicide and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, so therefore they got on board and helped. And, yeah, now it's a really big movement that we're creeping into interstate and uh, it's really exciting still even seven years on, which is something I'm really, really proud of. You travel extensively around Tassie and I think you do a little bit around the rest of Australia as well, speaking at schools and footy clubs and sport, all different kinds of sporting clubs. Yep. What did you learn in those early stages and I guess what do you hear now about how young people are feeling? Yeah, uh, I think that the, the stigma is definitely there. Um, I mean, I don't, our school program, I, I was really keen to work with kids to start off with. I think that's one of the things I said to Relationships Australia when I sat down with them was that, um, you know, I want to work with people that were around all my brother's age because I truly believe that I miss those signs and I want to tell these young people what those signs are. Um, when we started doing work in schools, you know, something that I'm really proud of at Stay Chatty and RA is that we evaluate everything now. All our programs, presentations, we send surveys, we capture all the feedback that people want to give us. And young people were writing in there thanking us, you know, um, uh, for the work that we're doing, but they were saying that, A, they didn't know where the help was, um, and B, they were, a lot of them were afraid to do so. But now after our program, they feel more comfortable and they know the services that are yeah. available. And I think it's so important just to, A, let kids know that it's okay to talk and B, where the help is available because we might think that they know 13, 11, 14, Lifeline, um, but I think we, they need to know as many as they can because what happens if a young person picks up the phone and calls Lifeline and they get someone on the phone that is not a good connection for them, mm. I, I'm sure a lot of them will give up hope and think that that's it. But giving them the amount of resource, like tons of resources out there and other numbers that they can call. I often say to kids, it might take you four or five times to find someone on the other edge of the phone that is a good connection for you, but keep trying because you will find someone that you connect with. You will get that solid connection to be able to open up and talk about how you're feeling. Um, and one thing I really ramble on about with kids is kindness. I think um, I, I really believe that a kinder world will create a huge amount of change in terms of mental health and and how we see each other. You know, I said at the start, we're all doing life together and um, we need to remember that everyone, you know, this is a jam-packed world and if you get that opportunity um, to do something nice or say something nice, do it because it creates a, a huge amount of change. You know, I, I love the end of our school program. As I said, I don't get to do it as much anymore because we've got other amazing people that are doing it, but I stand up and I say, guys, there are people in this room that are different to you, but guess what? Who gives a shit? That person next to you has a heart, they have a family, they have feelings. So next time you want to open your mouth or write something about them, think about how it would make you feel. And I, I genuinely, truly love that moment because I really feel it strikes me. I, I see their eyes light up. I see them thinking about 
moments where they've been bullied. I see moments in their eyes where they've bullied someone. Mm. And I, I really believe that change occurs in that moment. And we've had, you know, that's why I think schools get us back. And it's something, again, I don't say the word pride and proud. Um, you know, schools get us back because that's what they need to hear. They need to hear that how they speak to each other, how they say things to each other is damaging. And, uh, you know, people can kill themselves and take their own life because of one word that you say, and that's really difficult to live with. So kindness, I think, is something if we can instil into young people, um, it will go a bloody long way moving forward, absolutely. What kind of tangible impact has your work had? Have you had people that have come to you and said after hearing your message, you know, it's, it's prevented them from doing something or it's, it's helped them reach out for help? What are there... Are there you know, what kind of tangible impact has it had? And are there any, you know, is there a handful of um, stories you can tell us that really stand out in your mind and, and make everything feel like, you know, everything you're doing has so much purpose? Yeah, um, I think those moments for me are why I still do it. Um, I've certainly over the years, um, you know, I've done over 600 presentations now. And wow. um, I think standing up there talking, I, my opening line is, um, I don't really want to be here doing this today, but I do it because no one ever did it for me. And um, sharing my story is tough. You know, I, I well up. I'm basically reliving the worst thing that yeah. you know, ever happened to me in my life. And it's difficult to do. But um, for me, there's been a lot of moments where I've come home and it's been emotionally draining because of what I'm doing or I just think, you know, maybe I need to change. Um, but the things that the reason I suppose I keep doing it is those stories of feedback and messages. I've got a positive feedback folder in my email um, and uh, I'm trying to think of one off the top, and of course I can't think of any, but they for me are the reason that people have said to us, people have gone as far as to say that because of Stay Chatty going to their school or their workplace, they are still alive today wow. um, because of our work and our message. And um, there's one young girl um, who follow each other on um, social media, um, and I spoke somewhere once, and she came up at the end and had a conversation with me about. Um, how she'd lost her own brother and we've formed like a bit of a friendship since then and now she does fundraising for us and you know she does um story stay chatty's got a an initiative called stories worth sharing where we invite people to share their own story of mental health depression anxiety and we put it on our socials she's done that um you know she's turned everything around and has this new sense of that she can grasp life um with two fresh hands because of stay chatty and you know that that for me is incredible to think that you know what i went through um and being able to turn that into this positive for people to see us as a leader in this and reminding them that they too can create change um, blows me away. I mean, people hit me up for a coffee to say, how did you start your not-for-profit, you know, such a successful organisation? And I sit back and I think, I can't believe people are asking me that. You know, I'm a tradie who put windows in and um, but that was running silicon beads up showers. But because I, um, I suppose, I just say to people, I was passionate, I believed in it, I knew it needed to happen. Um, you know, grab things with both hands and truly believe that you can create change. And yeah, so yeah, long-winded answer that, but um, the reality is that yeah, that's what keeps us going. The the, the people are, have opened up and been honest enough to say thank you. You've saved my life, or you've saved someone I know. And you know, there's nothing more powerful than that. I, I truly love that. It's a really special thing. Does it feel like when you you know after everything you've just said, then does this feel like a life purpose to you? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I certainly found my purpose through this. Um, yeah, I'd give anything um, to have Ty back. I, I'd give absolutely anything to um, to be able to, you know, wrap my arms around him and, and tell him that things are going to be okay. But 
it definitely did allow me to find my purpose. You know, I was quite lost when I look back. You know, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't off the rails and I had good friendship base and all those amazing things and healthy, etc. But I was putting windows in and I wasn't content. You know, I'd still kick my boots off and think I, I don't really want to go back and do that, do that tomorrow. So I, I'm very fortunate too that, um, no, I absolutely love my job. I love what I do. I spring out of bed every day knowing what it is that I can do to create some positive change within um, communities, our state or even the country. Um, and so that's a thrill for me and I'm, I'm very, very lucky and will forever be grateful and be um, indebted to those that, that believed in me and gave me that opportunity to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't say to people, oh, if you hate your job, throw it in and get out there and do something um, different. Yeah, if you can, absolutely. Um, but I certainly... Um, yeah, and very, very fortunate to have that opportunity, absolutely. How do you hope to see Speak Up Stay Chatty grow from now? Yeah, I always said I wanted it to be a national organisation. I mean, as I said, we've got um, funding for our schools program. Julia and Kat run that down here. Um, we've got a funding for our sports program, youth reference group. There's a lot of things happening in Tassie. Um, what I've learned is um, the education departments all sort of have their own mental health programs in schools, and um, there's a lot of work to crack that, you know, like, We've got a fantastic relationship with our government and our education department in Tasmania um, and our schools program is going really, really well. To get it into state is, you know, is incredibly difficult um, because there's a lot of other great organisations like ours doing it. Um, I believe our sports program is really tangible and we're having some really exciting conversations with um, a lot of people at the moment about how that could be adapted because um, I've spoken at some forums around the country for sport and there is a real need for... Um, things such as our program, you know, um, getting groups in and talking about how off the field performance will absolutely better your on field performance. So there's a there's a real market for it out there. Um, but then there's my speaking. Yeah, you know, I'm starting to do a lot more um, speaking interstate, which is really exciting. They obviously got canned this year. This was probably going to be my biggest year um, oh. for my speaking. They've all been postponed, fortunately. So that yeah. means later on or next year, I'll still get that opportunity to do so. But I think that's a really good way to spread our message um, around the country. And, I'm, you know, I don't just stand up there on behalf of um, my family when I do talks interstate. I honestly stand up there as a real proud Tasmanian um, telling people that, you know, we've got the second highest rate of suicide in Australia. Um, I'm just a young bloke that lost someone who is really passionate about this um, and you can create some change in your household or your workplace. So um, I believe that's how, you know, it's, People send me photos seeing a sticker in Melbourne and Sydney and Perth and, um, you know, melts my heart. I probably have a little cry when I when they come through because I will never forget why that sticker was created. But there's that real sense of pride that Stay Chat is growing. Um, but I also don't want to do it for the rest of my life. You know, I, I'm not silly. I know that I'll burn out in, in doing this work. I'm fully passionate um, for it right now. But, um, you know, I've been off six weeks now on paternity and sick leave with a bad knee and... Um, the wheels are turning, the people that work for us are passionate, um, they're engaging, they love what they do and, and I know that this will be a legacy that I leave behind. I hope it sticks around forever and um, it'll be what Richmond person created but um, what's in store for me next, I'm not really sure just yet. What does grief look like to you and what does it look like now? Um, I... I um, I still feel that moment, you know, that night when mum rang and it was like a movie scene. I'm, you know, I never forget my girlfriend who's Sahar, my wife now, you know, dropping me at the end of mum's cul-de-sac and um, <clears throat> seeing the ambulance and police up the end of their, at their house right at the end and, you know, running and 
falling over in the middle of the street and a, a random neighbour holding me while I'm on my knees screaming. You know, like that's stuff you see in movies. And I think I'd never, that's, you know, you talk about PTSD and no disrespect to people that have gone to war and all that stuff. But I, you know, if I hear, especially now with Maya, you know, if I hear Sahar yell out, I panic and I run and um, I'm really on edge. And I'm, you know, fortunate that at Relationships Australia, there's some like, um, support you get with counsellors that work at RA where it's not counselling but it's called supervision where once a fortnight you can sit down with this supervisor and just open up and get some support for your work and your life and, and I utilise that as best I can because one of the things I, I do struggle with is fear that something like that will happen to me again. Yeah, um, yeah if my wife yells or someone, um, I hear a loud noise, I, I really do fall into that moment and it takes yeah. me back to that that moment back then. And I, I lost my nan and pop. Um, within a year and a half after losing Ty. Um, I was incredibly close to them, um, but I feel I was still numb from Ty when I lost them. And since I haven't lost anyone, but I now live with a real fear that I will. And I know I will lose people, um, but I, yeah, grief for me comes with a real sense of fear. I worry of how I will deal with it. Um, and so I do as much work as I can behind the scenes to to brace myself for that because I, I worry... You know, I'm not fragile or I'm not unstable, but I, I do worry how I will deal with that. You know, life's good to be able to tell my story right now how it is, but if a key person in that story was removed from it, I, I feel I really struggle to, to get it out. So, yeah, um, it's amazing how those things happen that, um, you know, you never think that you'll, you'll go, like I said, like a movie, you never think you'll go through something like that and it is crazy how it changes you. Um, I sort of live on the edge a little bit with that. Yeah, it's really strange. What uh, you've spoken um, previously on other things and in your in your speech that you make about the five ways we can create change. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, well, I haven't done a presentation for uh, a couple <laughs> of months now, so I'll have to try and um, remember what they are. Um, get help when you need it um, is a, a really big one. Um, we just sort of spoke about that, and I think that um, goes without saying. Um, it's okay to not be okay um, is a big one to finish to finish on. Um, listening saves lives. Um, listening is a big one. I, what I've learned in all my training, again, I go back to the training and, and resourcing I've done over the years for mental health. A lot of us don't ask someone how they're travelling because they think we're going to have to fix that person's problems. I know I was like that back in the day. If I saw um, a mate or a, or a family member that was off their game, I think you know, if I ask them how they're travelling, I'm then going to have to be the one that fixes their problem and how will I ever sleep if I don't? Um, You've got to forget that. You've got to not be that. You just ask the question, let them get it off their chest and then point them in the direction of a service or, or a way in which they can get that support. So listening saves lives is imperative and, and really important for us to know that you don't have to be that expert. Leave it leave it to the experts um, to, to have that conversation with them to get through it. Um, I'm trying to picture my screen. It's okay, not okay. <laughs> listening saves lives. Get help when you need it. And there's one more that I cannot, oh, kindness. Kindness is the other one as well. Um, kindness, yeah. Um, I think I've already gone on about that enough as to how we can create change. I often say about kindness, um, what I do now, um, our office is in Salamanca and for those listening outside of Tasmania, Salamanca is the hot spot of, you would know, of Hobart. Mm-hmm. And our office is there and I walk down and I spend shitloads of money on coffee and food. And every time I walk down the street, um, I always acknowledge people that walk past me. I will always pride myself on being that person that gives a little nod or says g'day or says hello to those going past me. Um, I often joke that I don't really do it with my wife anymore. She thinks it's a bit unusual. Um, she tells me to stop saying hello to people when we walk around the street. But 
for me, that is my little act of kindness and my little reminder to people to know, you know what, people out there do care and there is people out there that will listen and will understand me. And for me, that's my reminder to them. And it also um, releases some endorphins, if you like, for me and makes me feel good like I'm, I'm playing my part. So kindness is another one as well. How has this experience with your brother, Ty, altered the way you'll parent your new daughter? Yeah, well, given she's uh, nearly six weeks old and I've been stuck in isolation, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I think open do- just an open door system will be so important. I've met so many parents um, that have messaged me or emailed us through Stay Chatty or whatever avenues it is and say, oh, I can't get through to my child you know they they won't they won't come and talk to me they think that I'm going to tell someone or they don't see me as that person and I know things can change and there's factors throughout life that your child will be as close to you as ever and then they'll get to 10 years of age and then that breaks away I think one thing I'll do as much as I absolutely possibly can is for as long as I can um, remind them that my door is always open and that I will be there for a conversation and I will move heaven, heaven and earth to, to help her get through that time and that absolutely nothing that she comes to me with will be unusual or strange. Um, I've been around the block and you have, um, I'm sure every parent has had moments in their life where they've, you know, they've played up, they've done things different or wrong and said stuff they wish they hadn't have. Um, we've all been there, we've been in that situation. So I think in terms of parenting, I'll encourage her to be kind, I'll encourage her to, to be herself. Um, but I'll encourage her to come to me whenever she has anything wrong um, because I will be there for her as much as I can. And as I said, there's be people out there listening saying, oh, I did all that, I did all that. Um, you know, I know that that can always go pear-shaped, but as long as I know that I did as much as I could to remind her that Dad would be there for her, that's, um, that's going to be really special for me and I hope that she utilises it moving forward. And do you think Ty would be proud of you? Yeah, I was waiting for this question. I thought, here we go. Here's where I'll um, probably um, lose my shit a little bit at the end. Um, yeah, definitely, yep. Um, yeah, I remember when I held her in the hospital and, you know, straight away thought of him and I said to my wife only yesterday that, you know, we, we don't go to the cemetery um, as much anymore. It's only five minutes down the road, you know. I call him there on birthdays and stuff like that and, um, I think it'll be important over the next few weeks. I really want to take her there. And, um, sorry, getting upset. Um, <laughs> don't you don't have to apologise <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, big big sook on the on the podcast, but um, yeah, I think um, there's always moments in life where you know won awards and things like that for what I'm doing, and you give them all back for to have him back. But I know he'd be looking down, and um, he'd be really proud. Yeah. Yeah, it's very emotional too. Oh, now (laughs) I finished. No, please don't apologize. I, no, not at all. Now I finish all my podcasts in the same way, and that's um, what would Mitch now tell the Mitch in his darkest moments when the world felt like a very scary place? What would What would you tell that Mitch now? Um, if I was in a dark place to get out and what would I do? Um, I get out. One thing I've found so therapeutic these days is to go for a walk and that sucked over the last six weeks. I had some complications with um, knee surgery and I can't get out and do that at the moment. And I think getting outside of four walls is just one of the most incredible things that we just take for granted. 
Um, I, this past six weeks, being in isolation and not being able to walk physically um, has mentally drained me so much. And I think that in my hours, um, you know, of losing tie or flat moments I've had throughout my life, when I've sat in the four walls of a bedroom or a lounge room, it, it has taken so much longer to get better. And I just think if you can appreciate the fresh air and getting out and um, looking up at the sky and realising that tomorrow is a new day, um, that is such a powerful thing that I think we all need to start appreciating a lot more. And I hope that given isolation and coronavirus, that it's something that we do think about a little bit more and take for granted being able to get out of our house. But um, yeah, there's all that stuff about connection and pick up the phone and that's important and ring a service. But I think just get outside, look up at the sky and think um, today's a shitty day and I'm in the middle of a bit of a shitty moment, but um, tomorrow is going to be a new day. And um, by getting this fresh air in, um, it might give you that little bit of strength to make that call or, or to open up to someone to tell them how you're feeling. So get outside of your four walls, look up, um, look around and, and have some positive vibes and, and it'll hopefully, hopefully make you feel a little bit better. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mitch. You've been so wonderful. This conversation has been so enlightening for me and I've got so much out of it. And the way you've spoken so honestly and candidly has been really beautiful and vulnerable. So thank you so much. Thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate it. As I said, after not speaking about it for mm. six weeks, I didn't realise that um, I would get so emotionally uh, attached to it. But uh, it's good for me to, to let out a few emotions as well. And um, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's such an important message to share. So I can't wait to get it out there. Thank you again. And best of luck with fatherhood. It's so exciting. Yeah. What a magical time. <laughs> thank you so much. It's amazing. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you got so much out of this epic chat with the brilliant Mitch McPherson, especially if you were the mum of young boys like I am. I'll pop links to Speak Up Stay Chatty's website and social media in the show notes as well as Mitch's Instagram. As always, you can connect with me at Elizabeth O'Neill. Again, if this chat has brought up any discomfort, 24-hour crisis support is available through Lifeline on 13 11 14. Have a brilliant rest of the week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.